It truly is an honor and a privilege to have this opportunity to sit down with Rebbe Russell and have this interview. So thank you, Rebbe Russell, for taking this time. And I know that your time is very precious. And I hope to ask some incisive questions that will not only help me personally, but also to those who listen to this podcast and call Yisrael. We have spent the last number of podcasts interviewing Rabbi Shays Taub, Yechanan Palter, his daughter Manucha, um, and many of them being your colleagues at the Fresh Start. And we talked extensively about, you know, HSPs, which are the 20% of the population who are orchids and they need to be treated with tender love and care and connection, and they need to be parented in a certain way. And I want to hear more about the correct way of parenting our special orchids. But today, I also want to hear about the other 80% of our children. And my hope is that we can split the time we have in two, half on the 20% and half on the 80%. And by the way, you can feel free to disagree with me at any time, anything I'm saying here. But in our family, for example, we have a few HSPs. And then there's some dandelions or the other 80%. And the first question I have is about the balance, you know, in parenting an array of different children with different parenting styles. So I'm really going to start with one specific question. It's a little long-winded, but if you could just listen to what I'm sharing here. And because this question has been on my mind for a very long time, you know, as, as we continue to navigate our own life's journey with our children, um, which has led to me facilitating a number of podcasts on the topics of dealing with the 20% and the 80%, I feel that I understand that there are certain people that have a sense and a feeling of unease and discomfort in their own skin, which is rooted in the spiritual, meaning they simply feel disconnected from a shaman way or as a result of a trauma. And I understand that these people are looking for ways to numb their pain or even to say numb their existence. They just don't want to feel their own existence. So they try to, they turn to their drug of choice. And as a positive psychology based life coach, I get calls from potential clients and I just got a call recently from parents who have clearly done a lot of their own internal work, and they have an incredible sense of self-awareness, and they share that their young eight-year-old child is struggling, and it's just a matter of time. They can already see she's looking for ways to numb her pain, and her existence is painful, and she's showing signs of not caring about Shabbos, et cetera. So my question isn't how to raise this child, even though that's an important question, but what I'm asking is a bit deeper. There is this concept of that you heard you speak about unconditional parenting and Avi Fishup calls it twisted parenting for those struggling souls who are in stage four, who may be already in active addiction, um, self-harming or in the psych wards. And I've also heard Blini Heller who offers a coaching um, and I've run the parenting course and she teaches about the concept of gentle parenting. And really what it all boils down to is connection. And everyone has the ability to connect and children really need to feel connected to their parents for their emotional well-being. And if children don't get that basic human need for connection from their parents, they're going to seek it out elsewhere. All this resonates with me. And I know this is this a lengthy question, but here's the question. I've heard from so many people that, that this level this level of parenting is with, without boundaries. It allows and permits children to be in control instead of the parent. And in, in addition, I've heard you say it, like I've heard you mention this on another podcast, or maybe it was a video that I saw, that there's two different studios of parenting, one for the 80% and one for the 20%. But my question is, if this is the highest level of parenting and it's so effective, why don't we parent all of our children from the get-go in this manner? Why do we wait for a crisis? We see a Manuka story, right? Her parents didn't wait for her to try to commit suicide. They started to react immediately. But would it not make sense to start to parent from the get-go this way? Why do we wait for stage four? I mean, Avi Fishup won't even talk till you're in stage four. What is a, what is a, in addition to that, what is a parent who, with an eight-year-old, for example, who's clearly in extreme discomfort? but it's simply too young yet. They're not necessarily self-medicating in a clear way. So how does unconditional love 
and having boundaries intersect and where they part ways? I know there's a lot of questions here, but if you can please. So basically what you've just given me is a 15 week course <laughs> on parenting. Could I sum it up with one pithy answer that all the listeners will say, wow, that just nails it. Great. Okay. <laughs> Could I back up and reframe the sugi in a way that works for me? Because it's a little different. If that's okay. And while I respect that for most parents, they're in the middle of the course of their parenting, realizing this is not as easy as I thought it was going to be. I do not have controls I thought I had or would have, and it, it isn't quite working out the way it should have. Now what do I do? See, I, I prefer to spend first the energy and the effort articulating what is parenting meant to look like so that we can understand where we went wrong. And then the unique interventions that we've developed over the years for trying to pretend to these kids, well, those interventions make sense because you have context. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, absolutely. So give me just two or three minutes to describe how it's meant. And I'll give you two simple, well, maybe three simple constructs of how it's meant to look. So the Torah gives us a mitzvah of periodic right? Having children. <clears throat> For most people, the biochemical aspect of impregnating a lady and getting a child, you know, people can work out how to do that pretty well. The problem is the main bulk of the mitzvah is not that act of producing the physical biochemical child, but the main part of the mitzvah is a mitzvah called l'shevis yitzara, which means bringing up a healthy citizen of this world. Taking that child, that baby, and turning it to, into a citizen, Hashem Chafetz wanted his world full of healthy people, both Jews and Goyim. He wanted the world full of all of us. And he wanted us to have these children and bring up healthy citizens. What does that mean? The Shevet Yitzhara. What is that mitzvah? And that's prior to Torah mitzvahs. Prior to us installing mitzvahs, we were meant to create a child who is three components, who is healthy in body and mind, who is happy and is capable of self-love and of loving others. These three are the components, really, of the mitzvah of L'Shevet Sitzara. Bring up a healthy, happy citizen of the world. That's our primary job. On that, on that basic essence of a healthy, happy, loving, self-loving human being, we then install mitzvahs around five or six. We meant to install them afterwards, having done that first. In the, I'm guessing, in the post-Holocaust rush, the world in which we had a battle and struggle, were we going to survive? As a community, as a culture, we compromised the development of that child who is a happy, healthy, loving human being in the pursuit of installing mitzvahs quickly and recreating the yeshivish and the Hasidish world, remaking those worlds fast 
that we shouldn't be lost to oblivion after the Holocaust. So we moved too quickly, it seems to me, into the installation of mitzvahs, into children who weren't really ready for it, in children whom we had not yet done the mitzvah of Lesheves Yitzhara, which is producing healthy, healthy, happy, and loving children. And in that system, it doesn't work. It's a fundamental error. To compromise loving, happy children in order to get them to wear sitzes and get them to do negavasa and freak out on them when they're four years old and they touch mutza. Prior to us creating in them this internal feeling of being healthy, happy, and loving is not the way of Torah and it's destructive. Wow. So we, we were all off. The whole community and culture missed it. I think respectfully, because in the post-Holocaust world, we plunged headfirst into attempting to reconstruct what was in Europe, both in the yeshivish and chassidish world. So in that rush, we didn't think. We weren't thoughtful about what we're actually doing. Because the rush was, let's recreate orthodox Haredi world as fast as we can, because we're facing oblivion. Another way of looking at that is as follows. If you look at what is healthy parenting, but I'm going to come to all your answers, but within this context. Another way of looking at it is as follows. Here's how the healthy parenting looks. This is what we were meant to do. Zero, there are three stages. Zero to two, we were meant to do nurture. Nurture, unconditional love. That means there's nothing our children can do that prevents us loving them. Whether they're colicky all night long, it is not their fault that we both have jobs the next day because of the kind of world and culture that we created that puts women at work and so that everyone's exhausted at night and this poor kid never has colic and is up at night and they're both like desperate for sleep and the child experiences the frustration and disappointment of their parents who are utterly fatigued, perhaps even complaining to each other, you take over, I can't anymore, I can't. And we're completely unaware of what that does to a child, how they experience that, how their nervous system reacts to this feeling of lack of love and caring. We're completely disconnected to it. We have no clue. What happened? Go ahead, continue. I have no idea what you just did. Okay, got it. Got it. If your child, let's say, you know, the wife finally convinces her husband that it's time to repaint the living room, and they put the money together and they repaint the living room, and someone left out a red permanent marker, and your 18-month-old found it and decided that Da Vinci appeals to them, so they're going to start doing artwork on this freshly painted wall. Your child's entitled to have parents who get the camera out and take grinning pictures of that wall with their kids together at the ludicrous comedy of it. And they shouldn't have parents who freak out and indulge the Spanish Inquisition to find out 
who left the red marker? Screaming and yelling and frustrated where the poor kid saw a marker and drew on a wall. They're 18 months old, for heaven's sakes. Children are entitled that if your parents take you to a chasna and your mother has a beautiful gown and the baby leaks through whatever it's wearing on her gown and she gets out of the chasna and sees a stain on her gown, get the camera, go home and laugh. Children are entitled to that. It is not their fault that we're so hung up with appearances and worry and shame and embarrassment that we freak out about it. Who diapered the baby? You did it wrong. Look what happened to me. I can't go in this fear and pain and yelling. And the poor baby has no clue why everyone's so angry with me. What is wrong with me? Children entitled to zero to two unconditional love. But we just, there's nothing they can do wrong. If they, if you're rushing off to work, that's your fault, not your child's fault. And if they spill an entire bowl of Cheerios and milk on you, and you have to go and get redressed, that's nobody's fault. It's life. Maybe it's our fault for rushing to work instead of being home and taking care of our kids. Who knows? But the fact is, it's not the child's fault. They're entitled to unconditional love. For the few children who get that, and there aren't that many, we build on that from two and on with limit setting. We are setting limits. They're always doing things that we have to set limits to our life. They're like whether they're walking in the streets as they're toddling or touching things or going in the kitchen near a flame on a stove right, or bedtime, or brushing their teeth, and everything else, cleaning their room, emptying the garbage, curfew at night, their life is us as parents setting limits. But if we did the unconditional love zero to two, then their experience of that limit setting is an experience of an extension of love. My parents are doing it to care for me. And tomorrow morning they love you, even if though tonight they're throwing a tantrum about bedtime, Tomorrow morning, they come into your arms and they know they're loved and cared for and they kind of understood it must be part of that zero to two. They intuitively know you're mapping their brains from a childhood to know that what my parents are doing is because they love me. But if a child didn't have that zero to two and did experience parents freaking out about all these various things they get up to or experience them frustrated, exhausted, tired, and you know, upset. And they experience the body language, the facial expression, the tone of voice of disappointment and frustration. So when you set limits on them, they see you as being punitive, taking away their pleasure, being controlling. And so they start rebelling against you. Whereas if you do it properly, Then from two until, I mean, you continue doing unconditional love and nurturing them, but then you build limit setting, which they experience and receive as an extension of love and kindness and caring for me, which kids need. They need rules, structure, and discipline to thrive. But it has to be built on that unconditional love, on the Lishevis Yitzhara of healthy, happy, and loving and self-love. You built that, they accept the limit setting, and by 15 or 16, they actually turn to their beloved parents for guidance about life. And from 16 to 24, roughly, they seek your guidance 
for life, school, education, profession, yeshiva, choice of marriage, they turn to you because they've experienced you as the support in their life to launch them into their own lives. That's how it's meant to work. Do you understand that when we start off and we get it all wrong, we don't do L'Shevet Sitzara because we're rushing to do mitzvahs and get them into school. So we want to make sure they can read before they need to read and do mitzvahs properly before they need to. Or fathers take four-year-olds and five-year-olds to shul, expecting them to daven. And there's always one kid in the whole shul who does at age five. So every other father's embarrassed when his kid doesn't. And then the kid picks up this lack of love and they don't feel cared for. They don't feel the nurture. So when they grow up and we do limit setting, they start rebelling. And when they rebel, almost all parents are disciplined and told to do everything that's wrong prior to doing what's right. The moment you see them rebelling, people say to you idiotic things like, you can't let them do that. You can't let them. I mean, how many parents actually let their kids stay out late at night beyond curfew? No such thing. Parents are eating their hearts out, watching their kids stay out, not knowing how to keep them in. We don't let our kids rebel. They rebel because we didn't give them the proper nurture and love and attachment in their childhood. So when they face the struggles of life, they couldn't turn to us because they didn't feel safe whether it's abuse or any other form of torture they go through or bullying or who knows what. And our goal as parents is we're all terrified by the Moses, all the Moses are Torah, that we're absolutely terrified we're going to throw our kid out. So we do everything wrong. We try to make them conform. Just imagine, the kid didn't have the zero to two unconditional love to begin with. They didn't receive the limit setting as a healthy product of parents who love me and care for me. They then start rebelling, and the parents' response is to control them more, not less. Well, how exactly is that meant to work? Why should the parents at that point respond? Why should the kids, rather, respond at that point saying, oh, thank you, I get it. So I, in my rebellion, was stupid enough to let my socks fall down. Thank you, mommy, so much for freaking out on me and telling me I should pull my socks up. I know this is in my interest. You really want the best for me. How do they know that? What they experience is parents who are terrified about life, scared of their own kids, frustrated and angry. And, and frankly, we're all terrified by the most of Satoya who want our kids to conform in a way that they cannot. They absolutely cannot. Let me interject for one second. I, want to, I just want to ask you one question. So anybody who's listening, including myself, will tell you that we've messed up from zero to two. And if they didn't tell you that they're lying, I mean, I, I still do it. Not even from zero to two, you know, an eight-year-old can do something like, ah, I'm like, Hey, calm down, Razel, just react appropriately. Um, sometimes I'll do it and I'll apologize afterwards, but I'm saying the awareness is much more, we, we know this now we have this knowledge, but let's say we've done it. Are you telling us that we all messed up and now like, no, what I'm saying to you is that once we realize that first of all, our kids are not a fault, we are. That's the first thing. We have to be humble and honest and stop being like, you know, being upset with our kids about their behavior and seeing them as a necessary inconvenience in our lives and making them feel that way. Right. And I'll interject one more thing I wanted to say is that I've heard people say 
that it's not their fault. It's not my fault. Like, you know, it's their cousin that influenced them. It's, it's this, it's this experience in camp that taught them this. They learned this from a friend. It's because they had an iPod. It's because they had too much free time in the summer. You rarely hear a parent say, this is my fault. I think it's extremely hard for a parent to actually self-reflect. So I'll tell you what it is. It not only is it extremely hard, we're all so embarrassed to admit that we won't do it. But the reality is like this. The piece that is our responsibility that we need to own to our kids, the piece is that I recognize I did not create the proper attachments with you that I should have done in your childhood. And therefore, you could not turn to me when in the course of life, struggles and problems happen to you that were tucker not my fault i didn't do it i you know a kid gets molested it's not my fault you got molested but guess what's my responsibility i didn't create in you a system of resilience whereby when it happened to you you felt safe enough immediately to come home tell me about it first day immediately so we could deal with it because most of the kids don't or when the kids get bullied at school what they hear from their parents is, well, don't do this or don't do that. So why do you have to do that? As if it's their fault again. What, what the piece that's our responsibility is that we have to acknowledge that we did not create the healthy enough attachments for our children to create resilience in their lives. Once we didn't do that, then all these external things, the friends, the neighbor, the molestation, the smartphone, the exposure here, there, and everywhere, which was not mine. I didn't do any of that stuff to my kids. But I didn't create for them the ability to be resilient and cope with it. As a matter of fact, I kind of left them on their own and then get frustrated with them when they need those things. And it's partial why they need them. Because the kids are hurting so bad. Have you heard my piece about the uh, the um, the hole in the heart, right? You've heard that piece where the kids have a hole in the heart and all they're trying to do is fill the hole in their heart. Yeah. That's why they do all the stuff they do. But of course, well, when- of course. I, I, my question is, let me take it a step further. I hate interrupting you because I want to hear every word that you have to no say. <laughs> and I want to be respectful as well for your time. Okay, so now that we know that it's, I don't like to say our fault, but now that we know that we didn't attach properly with our children, we did not have the zero to two years, or I like to think that's much more than two. I think we shouldn't lose our stuff when our eight-year-old no, comes home misbehaving in school. No, I, what I meant was zero to two is exclusive. That's exclusive. all you do. That's all you do. Continue to do that forever. Exactly. So now what? So what? That's the point. Look, this is why the sheeters that we developed, or at least I worked on for the last 25 years, was all built on what I considered to be a way to reattach the children to their parents. I theorized it was really simple. Parents do not kids cause kids to go off. It's the outside things that happen to kids that make them go off and give up. But the only way they're going to come back or be interested in finding their way back is if they reattach to us. And the sense is they have to want to be at my Shabbos table and want to be in my sukkah and want to be at my Pesach seder and bring their kids there. Well, that's never going to happen if all they get is parents who are busy trying to control them and fix them and make them come to my Pesach seder and make them sit in my sukkah and make them dress properly. We're never going to get them ever to be interested in looking for an option to find a way back. 
parents walk around with a big red and white target painted on, you know, painted on them, where we offer ourselves as a carbon, so you can just blame me. Why would you ever look at yourself? I just painted a target on me. Shoot me. Because everything basically I say is making you crazy. So why would the kid ever look at themselves and indulge themselves to ask, hmm, I wonder if there's something about me I need to take care of and fix. Why would they ever do that if their parents conveniently paint the red target on themselves and say, shoot me? So it was partial to me that the primary work that was going to facilitate any of our kids ever coming back, looking at themselves, re-looking at their values in Judaism, to see, and not just in Judaism, in life in general, just to be a successful person, not just smoking pot all day or drinking or whatever they're doing, but to be a, a productive member of society, then we got to go back to the basics and do L'Shev Sitzara. we got to go and do that mitzvah again. That mitzvah is where we help our children feel healthy and happy, loved, loving themselves and loving others. And that we can do as parents. Now, obviously, here's the, here's the piece that I had extraordinary siyata dishmayim when this piece came to me. My eldest daughter went off when she was 14. And it was such a shock to us. We were a loving family. We, we couldn't, didn't even begin to understand how on earth that happened. And by 15, she was doing every drug in the book. I mean, we went through, you know, unbelievable sorrows. So I'd taken her one time to Tzfat. I went to Tzfat and I took her to Tzfat. And we were talking, I was trying to work out, like, how to, well, actually I wasn't. I was just feeling hopeless and lost. And just, like, wasn't trying to work out anything. I think I was just trying to survive and make sense out of, you know, the insanity. And we, we'd had a wonderful Shabbos in Tzfat. And um, very roughness, and I thought, you know, this is like turning a corner somehow. We, you know, this felt good. And we left Svant, and right away she turned on the radio onto like heavy metal. You know, like it was crazy, and I just, you know, my nervous system went off. I mean, I didn't say anything, but frankly, I was dying inside. And uh, we went Derech Abikar. We got to Beit Shan, pulled into a gas station, and I left her in the car and walked out into a wadi, into the fields by the Jordan. I just felt so disconnected and so lost. I didn't know what to do. I frankly didn't know what to do. And there was no one, this is 25 years ago, there was just no one guiding anyone to do anything other than everything wrong. I was told everything wrong, and that I knew I wasn't going to do, but I didn't know what to do. So I went out into a wadi, and I think I cried, and uh, I talked to her. Gosh, it's as real now. It's as real now as it was then. Yeah. And I asked Hashem for guidance. You know, tell me what to do. How does this work? You know, what are we meant to do here? And Hashem put a few words in my head. I promise you, I did not have the emotional, psychological capacity to work this out myself. But he gave me a gift and he put the words in my head and it formed the underpinning of everything I did for the next 25 years of my life. Because what he put into my head were the words, I want you to defy me. D-E-F-Y, defy me. 
to try to define me more than I can love you because you're going to fail. That was the thought that came to me out of the blue of this body. I want you to define me more than I can love you because when you fail, you'll come back. You'll discover that my love for you is greater, more powerful than your defiance of me. Because essentially that's what our kids need. How do you know as a child that you're really loved when you're hurting and you conform? If your daughter comes home and dresses just perfect, Miss Bezyakov, you know, little Hasidish girl, just the way she's meant to be, how does she actually know if you love her or you just love the way she dress, dresses and how it makes you feel? If a boy defies you and gets a weird haircut, shaves off and does a mohawk or puts on an earring, he has a greater chance to find out if my parents actually love me. That's very powerful. I think that answers almost every one of my questions. Like I'm, I'm speechless right now. So, This thought was gifted to me from above in that wadi in Bedsham. And uh, I set out to see if it was true. And I discovered it was, and I discovered it was the road to repairing attachments, was loving them where they're defiant, not loving them when they're compliant. That doesn't repair attachments. Loving them where they're defiant, not where they're compliant. That's that's a powerful line. And everything else I've done since then has evolved out of this principle of life. And if you repair the attachments, they take care of themselves because they want to, not because they're told to. Because they want to be close to us because God made it that way. Hashem made a world where children want to be loved by their parents. You know, we as adults all know this. You know, as our parents get older, mine aren't alive anymore. But as they were, I, I can remember as I got older, it was so important for me that my parents would be proud of me. You know, and I realized we all feel that. It's a natural thing Hashem put into the breeder. The only thing that stops children experiencing their parents being proud of them is the parents. It's not the children. So when we love them, dafka when they're defiant, dafka when they're at their worst and they're struggling, and we understand that struggle and we embrace them within their struggle and we understand their needs, they reattach, they heal. Gosh, I don't know why I'm so emotional. I apologize. It's, uh, please don't. Please, it's 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 really incredible, actually. I feel so much pain for kids, all our kids. Yeah. You know, I apologize to children frequently on behalf of a cardinal what we did to them. 
we had a God-given job to love them, to nurture them, to make them feel loved, but we let them down. We let them down. We let them down in the pursuit of our cultural lifestyle, our needs for koilol and shivas, life, work, and who knows what. But we let them down. We had more kids than we could handle. And we had children in a context where we couldn't nurture them. And they were entitled to that. But we let them down and then we blamed them. You know, it wasn't me that said that the word moisted is the same Russian table as the word stone. Wow. And just as stone cut off their feet and cut off their arms, their hands to fit them in, what we've done is taken our kids and cut off pieces of them to try and force them to fit in. And then we expect them not to say ouch and not to rebel, but to be compliant as we cut them in shreds. Well, that's wrong. That's wrong. Well, that really um, sheds a lot of light on uh, most of the questions that I asked. Like I said, I, I appreciate your honesty, your vulnerability. Um, you know, let me ask you a question. You know, I've seen parents who are loving and accepting and they start to realize this, like when their child's, when it's not that it's too late, because we know that it's never too late. You can always connect to your child. Would you agree with that? You can even at 40, if you choose, sure. turn okay. to your child and say, I made a mistake. I did something wrong. I parented you the wrong way. I didn't know we better. Be never, we don't have to be never think about it. We right. just be honest. Honest and humble. And humble. Right. So my question is, is that let's say this child's younger, like a lot younger. Okay, well, you're, you know, like eight or nine or 10, and you know, you're still buying your child's clothing, and your child is starting to show that they want to have shorter skirts, they want, they have a desire for things. We're not talking about when they're showing outward signs of struggle, right? And it's against our values, or they want to have, you know, they want to have a phone or a computer game that's violent or whatever it may be, but it's not necessarily clear that they're struggling with some underlying mental health or challenge. I guess, you know, because I've heard people say to me, like, well, you're in control. You can buy, you buy your kids' clothes. You can you can buy them what they want or not buy them what they want. Why are you buying your 12-year-old, your 11-year-old, and not see his outfit? So what would you answer those people? What would, your, what would your answer be for them? What do they do with Hanechana Pidaka? Would they please respond to me with that first? Tell me what you do with those words, what they mean to you. Hanechana Pidaka. Please tell me what that means. It means you should educate your child according to their path, according to their needs, what it is that they're showing, not what their teachers are saying, not what your, your system saying, not what your neighbors are going to say, not what the shotgun's going to say, but what your child needs. So if we bring up our children attuned to what their needs are, then they feel loved and cared for. So most of these problems don't occur. And when they do occur, trying to make them conform in clothing is what Chazal said, we're looking at the kankan, the mamashu b'seifei. So how on earth can we possibly expect that to have a positive result, forcing them to comply with not being who they feel they are? 
all they can do is hate us more. So we win a short battle and we lose the war. It's the most short-sighted, idiotic thing to do. Of course, we can choose what to buy. But shouldn't our goal be to help our child grow up feeling loved and cared for? So if you can have a conversation with your child, Shaitala, this dress is not long enough. Here's why. Here's why it's not good for you. 